this morning, um, like last week, I'm not going to go to one specific text. I have a topic I'm going to cover this morning. It's the topic of depression. The sermon title this morning is Dealing with Depression. Winston Churchill called depression the black dog. Others have called it a funeral in my brain, a season in hell, a black hole, having your finger caught in a slammed car door, and falling into a bottomless pit. And Abraham Lincoln said it was the hippo. Modern research says that 20 to 30% of Americans will at some point in their life struggle with depression. Almost a third. And if we take that number and we assume that number is true, that means 20 to 30% of the people in this room are struggling with depression, have struggled with depression, or will struggle with depression. And regardless of what people say about depression, regardless of what you think about its source, those people are actually hurting. They're actually in pain. And if they're hurting, shouldn't the church have something to say about it? And so this morning, I want to deal with the question, not only what is depression, but what's a biblical view of it, and how do we deal with it? So what is depression? Let's answer that question. Depression is not just feeling blue or feeling discouraged. We live in a sin-filled world. Sadness, difficult times come. You're going to feel sad and discouraged at some point. But being sad or discouraged is usually temporary. It comes and it goes. And while you're sad, you can usually carry on with life as normal. The world doesn't stop. You don't stop doing what you're supposed to be doing. You understand why you're sad. I'm sad for a particular reason. The sad person can identify the source of their sadness. They can still function in the world. They can get up and go to church. They can get up and go to work. They fill all their responsibilities. That's sadness. That is not depression. When a person is depressed, they struggle to even identify why they're depressed. You ask them, why are you depressed? I, I don't know. I just don't feel good. I feel horrible. Not only do they struggle with feeling horrible and being sad all the time, they spend a lot of their time crying, weeping, and they lack the strength and the desire to engage in normal life. They would rather just stay home and just sit there or lay there in bed rather than do what they need to do. Just the simple tasks of life become impossible. They've reached a point of despair and hopelessness. I think one of the best definitions of depression is this one. Depression is that debilitating mood, feeling, or air of hopelessness, which becomes a person's reason for not handling the most important issues of life. That's the key right there. They stop functioning. They stop fulfilling responsibilities. They stop doing hobbies. They stop doing the things that they're supposed to do and the things that they usually like doing. Dr. John Street compared discouragement and depression. If you want to know the difference between discouragement and depression, it's this. Here's what he said. When a person is discouraged, they are down. When a person is depressed, they are down and out. 
And so we have to wonder, how is it that a person gets to be depressed? It's not like you just wake up one morning and you're depressed. That's not what happens. And that may be the experience of some. That's how it feels. So first, I have to say that there are some medical conditions that can cause depression. If you go see a medical doctor, they'll tell you there are some illnesses, actual illnesses, that create the symptoms of depression. And if you go to the doctor and you tell your doctor, well, I've been feeling depressed lately, he can do a physical exam. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know what that involves. But he does a physical exam, and he can tell you if there is a physical reason for you to feel depressed. And when he finds one, he does not prescribe antidepressants. He treats whatever the condition is. So if it's a vitamin deficiency, he corrects the deficiency and the depression goes away. That's one reason someone might feel depressed. But if it's not a medical problem, if there's nothing physically wrong with your body, how is it that people end up being depressed? How is it that some people end up being at a point where they're so sad and so despairing that they can't function? Here's how it happens. Depression occurs when we respond in an unbiblical way to the problems and the circumstances of life. And it's not just one time. It's not just I encounter a situation and I respond incorrectly one time. It's repeated and incessant unbiblical responses to the events of life. How you feel, your emotions, and your physical perception of those emotions, we call it feelings. How you feel is directly related to what you think and how you behave. If you respond to life with sin, do you know what the logical consequences of sin? The feeling of guilt and shame. Every time you sin, do you not feel guilt and shame? If you respond to the events of your life and trust it by trusting in yourself, and say, well, I, can, I have the strength to do this. I have the strength to fix this. What's the logical consequence in your feelings? Anxiety. Jeremiah 17 says, if you trust in man, you'll, you're anxious. But if you trust in God, you won't be anxious. And then, when, they, when the person experiences those negative feelings... They experience the guilt, the shame, the anxiety, the fear, the sadness, whatever it is. They respond in an unbiblical way. So take, for example, the person who's struggling with anxiety. They don't like the feeling of anxiety, so they try to find a way to get rid of the anxiety. And what do they do? Some of them will turn to alcohol. Some of them will turn to drugs. Some of them will just turn to another sin to try to get rid of the feeling, because they just don't want to feel that anymore. But that unbiblical response produces more negative feelings. And so they end up feeling worse. Have you ever tried to correct a sin by committing another sin? And you just felt worse for it? Now perpetuate that cycle. And it's this continual downward spiral of events, unbiblical responses, negative feelings, unbiblical response, negative feelings, unbiblical response, and it ends up in despair and hopelessness. And they feel like they can't get out of that feeling. And they feel trapped by it. That's what depression is. 
And this morning, what I would like to do to help you understand, to help you deal with depression, is I would like to give you three unbiblical responses that lead a person into depression. Three responses that lead a person into depression. These are not all of the responses that can lead someone into depression. These are just three of them because we don't have enough time to go a lot further. So let me give you the first unbiblical response that leads to depression. Following your feelings. Following your feelings. As I said before, feelings are the physical experience of an emotion. Emotions are God-given. They're God-given and they come from your soul. They come from the immaterial portion of you. And they're there to motivate certain behaviors. Think of 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 7, where he talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. They're there to motivate behavior. And you experience those emotions through your physical body, and you call that a feeling. And when a person follows their feelings, what they do is they make decisions based on how they feel. They don't go to the Word of God and make their decision. They don't think about what God says about the situation. They look at how they feel and they say, I feel like this would be the right thing for me to do. You see people do this in decision making. Well, I'm trying to figure out if I should go to this particular job and I've been praying about it, but you know, I'm, I'm just getting a real bad feeling about it. Their feelings eventually become their functional gods. And they have to respond and act in such a way so as to get the feelings that they want. Now, there's this idea out in the world that women are more emotional than men. And so guys will typically will say, well, that, I don't need to worry about this because I'm very logical. And that actually makes you more susceptible to this than anyone else. And in biblical counseling, I've sat with guys over and over again, and I've seen guys destroy their lives, destroy their marriages, because they follow their feelings and they act on how they feel rather than what they know. What are some evidences of a person who follows their feelings? What are some ways that you can see this? I, I've kind of developed this little list through counseling. A couple of things that you can look for. One, messiness. Just being a messy person. How does that work? I'm going to use myself as the example here. Okay, I like books. I have books at home. And my bookcases are right behind me, behind my desk. And so I can grab a book, pull it off, keep on studying. And we'll just say, well, this is one of them. I'm studying. I grab this book. I open it up. I use the book. I close the book, set it on my desk. I might need it later. Grab another book, open it up, do the same thing. And so by the time I'm done studying, I've got books stacked up on my desk. They're all around me. When I follow my feelings, I finish my study, and I say, I really don't feel like putting these away right now, and I just leave them there. That's following my feelings. I just don't feel like doing it. Procrastination is another sign of someone who follows your feelings. Putting off for tomorrow what you should do today so you can get some short-term gratification. So you can feel better today. And why do you put it off? You put it off, well, because it's difficult. It's hard. It's unpleasant. I don't enjoy it. It's not going to make me feel good to do it. Something else would be more enjoyable. So I'm going to go do that instead of do what I know I need to do. And the hope is that tomorrow I'll feel better and I'll feel like doing what I should have done today. 
But what's unpleasant today is going to be unpleasant tomorrow. So we put it off. A lack of spiritual disciplines. People like to say, well, I don't read my Bible because I don't have time. When you get to heaven, God's going to point out how much time you spent on one of these. And how much time you spent on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. How much time you spent watching television or doing some hobbies. If we're honest, time is never our problem. The problem with our spiritual disciplines is when we wake up in the morning and we say, I need to go pray, it's usually, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like reading the Word today. And we follow our feelings rather than doing what God wants us to do, rather than doing what is expected of us. Sexual sin. Pornography is a growing trend among men and women, and it's even in churches. And as I've counseled men with this problem, over and over and over again, I find that one of the leading causes is someone following after a feeling, trying to feel good, trying to feel better. And so they run into sin, hoping that that will make them feel better. And the last evidence of someone who follows their feelings, refusing to deal with problems. You might say it this way, they're all talk, no action. They'll sit there and tell you day after day how horrible they are and how miserable they are and how much it hurts, and, but they never do anything about it. They're just completely overcome by their feelings, and that's all they can think about, all they can focus on. And following your feelings is a key factor that leads into depression. This is where the downward spiral begins, and the next two unbiblical responses dovetail right with this one. We get a negative feeling, we get a negative emotion, and instead of doing what we're told to do, instead of acting on what God tells us, we act on our feelings and we try to find something that will make us feel better. But we never run to what God tells us to do if we're acting on our feelings. Why? Because your sinful nature is not going to produce feelings that leads you back to the Bible. Your sinful nature is going to send you back to what? To the world and to sin. All the things God told you, you cannot find hope, you cannot find comfort or peace in. And we chase after positive feelings. And I want to show you this in Scripture. If you open your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 4. This is a well-known story, so we don't need to go through the whole story. You guys know it. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Both Cain and Abel bring an offering to God. And God accepts Abel's offering. But he rejects Cain's. Now. There's plenty of debate and discussion as to why God accepted one and didn't accept the other. For today, we're, we're not going to go into that debate. We're just going to acknowledge that God accepted one and God did not accept the other, and he had his reasons for doing so. But look at verse 5. Genesis 4, verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Moses here uses an adverb, very, and it describes the fullness of the emotion. When he says he became very angry, what he's saying is his entire being, his entire body, all of him was overcome with this emotion. And that emotion here in verse 5 is his countenance falling. More literally in the Hebrew, his face fell. Angry in the NASB shows up in verse 5, 
but it actually is implied from verse 6. We know he was angry because verse 6 says he was angry. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? If I were to translate verse 5 in a very wooden, very wooden way, verse 5 would read this way. Cain became very fallen of the face. That's how verse 5 would read in a very wooden manner. It describes the physical act of his face falling. And he, in verse 6, he says, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? He's angry and he's doing this with his head down. Translation, he's angry and he's pouting. So God turns to him and says, hey, uh, Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Why are you angry about this? And why are you sitting there pouting and feeling sorry for yourself? You know, when God asks a human being a question, he's not actually looking for information. He already knows the answer. The point of the question is not to get information. The point of the question is to get Cain to start thinking about what he's doing. Examine your own heart. You can sit there and pout about it, but that's not the right answer. That is not the right response that you are to give. And if we're honest, we've all kind of been in Cain's shoes. We've all had this moment. You're denied something that you really want. You really wanted this. And when it's denied to you, it just sucks the life out of you. It's like you can't breathe, you can't think about anything else. All you can think about is the fact that they took this away from you. And then your motivation for everything else just dries up. I have some other things I'm supposed to do today, I don't want to do them now. I have some other things I was wanting to do today, and I now don't want to do them anymore. Because I am like Cain, I am consumed by this emotion, by this fact that you have denied me something that I want. And you're emotionally defeated, you feel terrible. And you don't feel like talking to anybody. You just want to draw away from people and be alone. And all those things that you're supposed to do, you put off. Even the things that you wanted to do, you put off. Why? So you can wallow in your feeling. Because sometimes I just want to be angry. Sometimes I just want to be mad. And we think that by somehow stewing in the emotion, and avoiding the responsibilities and the tasks and the things that we're given by God to do, but somehow by doing that, that'll make us feel better. It'll help us get over whatever this person has done to us. And in reality, it only makes us feel worse. When I feel sad or hurt, if I follow my feeling and I chase after feeling good, and I start stewing in it, Let's say one of the tasks I need to complete that day was laundry. Well, is there ever a time anybody wants to do laundry? But because I'm in my mood, I think, look, the best thing for me to do is put laundry off and I'll feel better. And when I feel better, I'll want to do laundry. Not very clear thinking. And so I put it off. And you might say, well, that's great because then you'll start feeling a little bit better. Not really. Because in my mind, I know I was supposed to get my laundry done today. 
and that's going to start bothering me. And I get the constant reminder of every time I walk past the laundry pile that I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And now I have to figure out a time that I am going to do it. And now I have to deal with worry and anxiety about the fact that I haven't done it and it still needs to get done. And I'm quickly running out of time and I still don't feel better. Oh, well, then I don't feel better. Now I actually feel worse because now added to my original sadness is the guilt of not doing the job and the anxiety of figuring out how I'm going to get it done. So now I feel worse. And so if I follow my feelings, what am I going to go do? Not the laundry. I'm going to go find some way to medicate my feeling and some way to make myself feel better. And people run to all sorts of things. We've talked about a couple of them to try to make themselves feel better. Sometimes it's just putting off another responsibility. I had breakfast this morning and I didn't want to clean the dishes because I didn't feel like it. But now every time I walk past the sink, I get the reminder of what I didn't do and I have to remember, oh, there's something else I have to do. And now the list of responsibilities that I've put off and I still have to accomplish is now growing. And when that gets to be too much, Now I need to go find something to distract myself with because now I'm really feeling miserable. And so instead of laundry, instead of doing the dishes, I go watch YouTube, television, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or some other social media. And I try to relieve my feeling by distracting myself. And when that doesn't work, some people just turn to sin. Like gluttony. I'm going to go eat something. I'm going to go open up the refrigerator and eat just so I can feel better. Some people turn to drugs, like some of it's prescribed, some of it's not. And they think, if I can just have this experience with this drug, then I'll feel better. Some people turn to sexual sin. Talked about that a minute ago. Some people turn to violence, both verbal and physical. All of this to resolve nothing more than a feeling. Because they're chasing after a feeling, that feeling has become their master. And they have to find a way to alleviate that negative feeling. And in the meantime, the responsibilities and the schedule I had arranged for that day go completely out the window. And with every responsibility I shed, hoping to feel better, I only feel worse. Because now I have all that added stress and all the guilt and the shame of putting off what I was supposed to do. And if I went and ran headlong into sin, now I have the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the discipline of God upon me for my sin. This is no solution. This is not how you should handle negative feelings and emotions. Because this is where depression begins. This is where that downward spiral starts. Look at... Uh, Verse 6 again, he says, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Cain, examine your heart. This is not where you want to start. Will pouting, procrastination, laziness, cheap entertainment, avoiding spiritual disciplines, will sin really make you feel better, Cain? Is that really what you're going to do? Have those things ever provided anybody any kind of relief, any kind of comfort? Okay, well, if I'm not supposed to do that, then what am I supposed to do? I feel horrible. How am I supposed to deal with this? So glad you asked. God has an answer. Verse 7. If you do 
well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Did you hear it? Do you see the secret there to overcoming negative feelings? In our flesh, we want to respond sinfully. We want to stew in the feeling. We want to procrastinate, put things off, find cheap entertainment and distraction. We want to run headlong into sin and try to medicate the feeling. And God's answer is completely different. God responds, when you feel badly, act rightly. Don't focus on your feeling. Don't follow your feeling. Do what you know is right, regardless of how you feel. Don't follow the whims and the dictates of every bodily impulse, trying to feel better. Your body is not God. It does not get to command you to do things. Your feelings are not God. And by the way, you don't know why you have the feelings that you have. If I eat a bad ham sandwich today for lunch, I'm going to feel it later. That's a feeling. I can't make decisions off that. Just like I can't make decisions off emotions. I have to act rightly and I have to make my body my slave. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You may feel bad. You may feel miserable. But that feeling does not alleviate your responsibility to be obedient to God. You are still commanded to be obedient. Get this. Right behavior leads to right feeling. If you want to feel right, act right. Well, does that mean I'll never be sad again? No. Sadness is a part of a sinful world. You'll never be sad again when you get to heaven. But sadness is not depression. You can be sad and still function in the world. You can be sad and still be pleasing to God. Right behavior will provide relief and comfort. Not because the behavior in and of itself is soothing. Doing laundry is not soothing until it's done and you can look back and say, look what I accomplished. But it's relieving because righteous living brings God's approval. And when God smiles on you, you will never be happier. You'll never feel better. Which is why Paul in prison could sit there and sing hymns after he was beaten with rods and he's chained to a wall. And he's singing hymns. Why? Because his circumstances don't determine how he feels. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? The solution for Cain was not pouting. It was not avoiding responsibility. The solution was not running headlong into sin. The solution for Cain was to go get a right offering and make that offering. If he would have just said, you know what, God, that was the wrong offering. Let me go fix it. And bring the right offering, God would have accepted him. He would have felt better. But what did Cain do? Cain stood in the emotion. He followed his feelings. And he ended up committing murder. And then God brought judgment on him and told him his consequences. And what did he do again? He followed his feelings again and went into abject despair. Oh, it's too much for me. Woe is me. You may feel bad. You may not feel good. And I'm not dismissing that feeling at all. But in that moment, you need to be obedient to Christ. Are you depressed this morning? Do you struggle with persistent negative feelings? 
that results in you avoiding responsibilities and hobbies? Are you following after your feelings? Learn the lesson from Cain. Stop following your feelings. Start acting on what you know is right. Start doing what is right. And if you have followed your feelings by putting off little responsibilities around the house, go fix it. Go home today, do the laundry, mow the yard, fix the things that are broken, clean the kitchen, whatever it is that you've put off. And if you say, well, pastor, those are just too big. I, I, I just don't have the strength for that now. Fine. Go home and make your bed. Do something small. Pick up a little responsibility that you've shedded. And if you don't want to do that, let's say, you know, your spouse made the bed this morning. Go in the bathroom and clean off the counter to the bathroom. The bathroom countertops are usually pretty small. Take something small. Well, I don't feel like doing it. Wouldn't that make me a hypocrite for doing it? God said obedience is better than sacrifice. And you can make it an act of worship. Lord, I know, you know my heart is not in this. I'm doing this only because I want to be obedient to you. You know how I feel. You know what I'm going through. The goal of the Christian life is not for you to feel good. It's not for you to feel better or to have a better feeling. That's not the goal of your Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is that you would be pleasing to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.9 should be your life verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Colossians 1, tend to be pleasing to him in every respect. In everything I do, in my thoughts, in my mind, in my desires, in my attitudes, in all my activities, I want to be pleasing to Christ. I don't want to have a feeling. I want to be pleasing to Christ more than I want anything else in the world. I want to be pleasing to him more than I want to be successful, more than I want other people to like me, more than I want to feel good, more than I want to live. I want to be pleasing to Christ more than I want to breathe. And Christian, if you're struggling with depression, when that becomes your life verse, you will start finding liberty from your depression. Because you will cease following after feelings. The first unbiblical response that leads to depression, following your feelings. Second, unbiblical response that leads to depression. Focusing on self. If you'll turn over to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 17, the story of Elijah is a really helpful story in dealing with it. When I say focusing on yourself, what I mean is this is looking at yourself as the solution to the every problem. Becoming hyper-focused on me. And when I'm so hyper-focused on me, God vanishes out of the picture. God is no longer present in my mind. And he, I forget everything God has done. I forget all of his promises. I forget all the ways that he's helped me in the past. I forget all the things he did throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I forget everything about God, and I only focus on me. And you can see this in the story of Elijah. 1 Kings 17, verse 1, we don't, we don't need to read the verse, but he goes to King Ahab. King Ahab was the king. And he says to Ahab, there's a famine coming. There's going to be drought and there's going to be a famine. The reason he did this was because the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel were promoting and pushing the worship of Baal. Baal was a fertility god. 
And if you gave Baal what he wanted and you satisfied this God, he would bring rain and crops and blessing and wealth. It was the old school version of the prosperity gospel. And so Elijah goes to the king and he says, hey, king, by the way, um, Yahweh says you're going to have drought and you're going to have a famine and Baal's going to sit there and do nothing about it. And he had every right to say this. This was what the Old Testament, this was what the law of God promised to Israel they disobeyed. Leviticus 26, 18. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. I'm going to turn the sky into a sheet of metal. It's not going to give you any rain. And I'm going to go to your fields and I'm going to put a sheet of metal over those two. You're not going to get any crops out of them either. Elijah was being a faithful prophet. He didn't act on how he felt. He did what God told him to do. He gave him the exact message. He had no fear. He had no concern for himself. His concern was doing what God wanted. He just prophesied famine in his own home country. Where he is living. There's going to be a drought and everyone's going to run out of food. You might think this is where Elijah would say, God, what am I supposed to eat? Are you going to kill me? You might think this is the point where Elijah would start panicking and worrying about his own future. Chapter 17, verse 4. God says to Elijah, It shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide food for you there. God says, hey, Elijah, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you a brook so you can drink out of it, and the ravens are going to come and give you food. I've got you covered. Then he, the brook drives up. Does Elijah panic and, what am I going to do? What am I going to drink? No, he, he turns to God. God says, hey, I want you to leave there. Go to Zarephath. So he leaves the brook. He goes to Zarephath. He gets to Zarephath and he finds a widow. And he sees the widow and he walks up to the widow and says, hey, would you give me a drink of water? And as she's going to get the drink of water, he says, um, by the way, can you make me a cake, a little piece of bread cake, so I can eat? And the widow says, um, I have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and the flour and the oil that I have is for me and my son to go make one last cake before we die. I don't want to give it to you. 1 Kings 17, verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear, go do as... You have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Feed me first. And then you can make one for you and your son. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of the flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. You do this, God is going to turn around and that's going to become an endless jar of flour and an endless jar of oil and you'll have all that you need. The widow's son then dies. The prophet doesn't sit there and weep and mourn. and He just trusts God. 1 Kings 17, 21. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he was revived. No hyper self-focus here. His, his mind was completely on Yahweh, and he trusted Yahweh to care for the boy. And God, in fact, responded. 
Well, then Elijah calls the 450 prophets of Baal, and he issues them a simple challenge. You say Baal is God, I say Yahweh is God. We have a simple way we can solve this. Get an animal, cut it up, put it on the altar, and then you call to Baal, and if he lights the offering on fire, we'll call him God. And then I'll call on Yahweh, and if he lights it on fire, we'll call him God. And the prophets of Baal took up the challenge. And they hooped, and they hollered, and they danced around. They began cutting themselves, trying to get Baal to answer. But he didn't. He remained quiet. And when they were done, Elijah turns to Yahweh. 1 Kings 18, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. He then ordered the, pro- the people to seize the prophets of Baal, and then Elijah executed them all. This is a man who trusts God. His focus is entirely on God. He's not focused on himself. He's not focused on what he wants or what he can get. He's focused on being pleasing to God. Well, after all this happens, Ahab goes to home to his wife Jezebel. And he reports to Jezebel and tells her, man, Elijah just embarrassed all the prophets of Baal, and then he executed all of them. And Jezebel doesn't like this very much, so she sends a message to Elijah. Here's her message, 1 Kings 19, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the God do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, one of the prophets, by tomorrow about this time. Translation, I'm going to kill you just like you killed the prophets of Baal. Now surely, this great prophet who has shown so much trust and so much devotion to Yahweh, surely the words of this queen would not bother him. Surely he would not get caught up in staring at himself and worried about what's going to happen to him. Surely the prophet that called for famine and it came, the prophet that believed God would raise a child from the dead, the prophet that called fire from heaven, the prophet that opened up the skies of heaven through prayer, surely an idle threat from a wicked king would not throw him off his focus. But it did. 1 Kings 19, verse 3, And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Jump down to verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Here's this prophet, this great man of God, just overcome by fear. Fear is not loving. Fear is always self-protection. Fear has at its core self. Love is concerned about everybody else. Fear is concerned about protecting me. And this prophet is overcome by fear, and he acts on how he feels, and he runs. And in running, he refuses to do what God has called him to do. He refuses to be the prophet that he was supposed to be. Instead of doing what he's supposed to do, he runs away. He didn't run to another city to keep preaching. He didn't go to King Ahab and to Jezebel, and preached judgment to them as a prophet should have done. No, he went off into the wilderness so he could be alone. He went off by himself where he thought nobody could find him. Nobody could come and question him. And this is what a person struggling with depression does. 
They isolate themselves. They separate themselves from everybody else. They don't want to be around anyone. You stop going to family to visit family. You stop hanging out with your friends. You stop going to church. I just want to be alone. Just leave me alone. Elijah breaks away from the world, leaves his divine calling, and isolates himself. The only thing that mattered to him at that moment was himself. Protecting himself. Something else that happens when you enter into self-focused despair, when you get this focusing on self, everything is viewed through a negative lens. Everything is now bad. Everything is now against you. If there is anything good in the world, it's not for you. If there's anything pleasing in the world, it won't please you. If God has made any kind of good promises, they're just not for you. Self-focus ends up being, woe is me, nothing is good, and there's nothing valuable in the world. And I have nothing. And that is exactly where Elijah ends up. Look at verse 4. He says, And came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. He gets alone, he sits down, and the text says this in an interesting way. Again, a wooden translation. He requested for himself that he might die. Translated very woodenly. He asked his soul to die. The idea here is he's continually saying, why can't I just die? Why can't I just get out of this? I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to have to put up with this wicked king and his wife anymore. I don't want to have to deal with the prophets of Baal. I'm sick and tired of being the guy who has to stand up for God and deal with all this. Completely focused on himself. Where's the well-being of the nation in his mind? Where's the well-being of the other people in the nation? Where are his thoughts about his friends and his family? Where is his concern for them? He's completely focused on himself. He's despairing over his circumstances and how it's going to affect him. And because he's despairing, he's taking his eyes off of God. His only solution is, I should just die. Because there's nothing else I can do. You would think by listening to Elijah that God had abandoned him. That God had just given up on him. Because the only mention he makes of God in verse 4 The only mention is at the end. Verse 4, And said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. The only reason he goes and talks to God is to tell God, Hey, you just need to kill me. There's really no other purpose for me to be alive now, God. No better than my father's. This is self-pity. This is woe is me. My father's past, they're gone. And I'm no better than them. So you might as well just take me too. I can't do anything. You see a change in the prophet? Chapter 17 and 18, you see this man who's so focused on the will of God and the glory of God and doing what God wants me to do. And now here's this prophet sitting under a tree in abject despair and woe, babbling suicidal requests. Was he outside the will of God? No, he wasn't. He had obeyed exactly what God told him to do. The famine was told to him by God. 
The judgment was told to him by God. The killing of the prophets was told by God. All of it was God's will. His circumstances were brought about by God. God didn't abandon Elijah. Elijah's problem is he took his eyes off of God. And he got self-focused. He spent way too much time staring in the proverbial mirror and looking at himself. And he forgot who God was. He forgot what God does. Instead of trusting in Yahweh, he started trusting in himself. Instead of turning to Yahweh for protection, he ran into the wilderness, thinking he can protect himself. Instead of asking God for strength, he wallowed in despair and asked God to kill him. Instead of asking God what to do, he turned around and said, God, there's nothing for me to do. You should just kill me now. Robert Somerville wrote about this passage. He said, in a moment of weakness, his response to his God-given circumstances showed a, a lack of faith. Instead of seeking refuge in God or God's people, he resorted to isolation. He wanted a desolate place where he could die without anyone to question him. Was his situation actually hopeless? Of course not. God proved that in the rest of the story. And you too will face difficult circumstances, just like Elijah. And those difficult circumstances come about even when you are in the perfect will of God, when you are doing exactly everything you're supposed to do. Remember the story of Job? Job didn't get what he got because he did something wrong. Remember God said, have you considered my servant Job? How righteous he is? Elijah didn't do anything wrong. Those circumstances were brought about God. Those were the perfect will of God for him. And instead of trusting God, he turned to himself. You know, there's this old saying, God never gives you more than you can handle. It's not true. It really isn't. Like Elijah, sometimes God gives you more than you can handle. And there's a point to it. The point is not for you to turn inwardly and focus on yourself. The point is for you to recognize you can't handle it and you need to turn back to God and you need to trust Yahweh. It's not to drive you to despair. It's to drive you to dependence. Dependence upon Him. Get your eyes off of you. Stop staring in the proverbial mirror. Focus on God. Focus on what he has done. Read through the Old Testament all the times that he has come and delivered his people. Focus on the attributes of God. Who he is, how he behaves, what he does, what he loves. Think of, as a believer in Christ, think of what Christ has done for you. Remind yourself of the gospel every day. Spend time memorizing scripture. Psalmist says, you know, you should meditate on Scripture day and night. One of the key things that lead people into depression is getting overly focused on themselves. Get your eyes off of you. Introspection is good, but for every one look you give to yourself, give ten to Christ. Okay, third unbiblical response that leads to depression. Fleeing from guilt. Fleeing from guilt. And by guilt, I'm referring to the guilt of sin. trying to hide and run away from the reality that you are guilty. Sigmund Freud, 
taught the concept of false guilt. Have you ever heard of that? False guilt? By the way, um, I had a whole section here on psychology. I took that out for time. Uh, psychology teaches that you are, a, you are an animal. You were not created by God. You were not made in God's image. According to psychology, you evolved from apes and animals. And because they don't agree with the creation, they don't believe in creation, they also don't believe in the fall, and so they say you're not a sinner. You don't have a sin nature. And therefore, they have no category for sin. And because they have no category for sin, Jesus Christ is never the answer to any of your problems, including your sin. And Freud said that guilt was this. You as an animal have base instincts, base desires. And guilt comes when the world around you inhibits your expression of your desires and prevents you from acting out your, all of your desires. And his teaching was that you should unleash, free the id, live out all of your base animal instincts, and be the animal you, you evolved to be. And guilt is what you feel when the society around you or your church tells you, no, 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 don't do that. That's what he said was guilt. And he said that is false. You should not have guilt. Because guilt is just the result of people manipulating you. But that is not a true definition of guilt. There is no such thing as false guilt. Guilt is not just a feeling. Guilt is a fact. Guilt is a fact. Guilt refers to the liability for punishment. And when we talk about the guilt of sin, guilt says that you are liable for punishment for your sin. You deserve to be punished. And if you are, in fact, guilty of sin, that means the guilt is not false. If you actually committed sin, it's not false. It's genuine guilt. By labeling guilt as false, psychology then focuses on your feelings and tells you the mean, they give you means of not resolving your guilt, but resolving the feeling. How can we make you feel better? For the second time, I'm going to give you these briefly. Some of them medicate you with antidepressants. Antidepressants are pain meds for your emotions. Studies have shown they have the same effective, the same rate of efficiency as um, a placebo. They work about as well as a placebo does, but they have drastic side effects. Some psychologists try to get rid of your guilt by numbing you, basically. Others attempt to sear your conscience by encouraging you to engage in the sin repeatedly until you no longer feel it. And still others recommend electroconvulsive shock therapy where they pass electrical currents through the brain. And the hope is we can erase the memory of what you did. And if you can't remember it, you can't feel guilty about it. It's all focused on getting rid of the feeling. And these are effective in one sense. Antidepressants will numb you. You won't feel it anymore. But the problem with an antidepressant is the antidepressant doesn't numb God's hatred of sin. Searing your conscience through repeated sin will eventually make it to where you can't feel sin anymore. And you won't feel the guilt anymore. But it will not lift God's wrath and his discipline from you. Electroconvulsive shock therapy will temporarily remove 
your guilt, your feeling of guilt over sin. It will temporarily erase those memories. But it will not remove God's memory of your sin. Trying to be free of the guilt, the feeling of guilt, is not a solution. It's not a solution. Going into more sin is not a solution. It's how you get more guilty. You have to actually deal with the guilt. One of the leading causes of people going into depression is not sin itself. It's how they respond to the guilt that comes from sin. And when we respond in an unbiblical way, it only brings more pain. It only brings more suffering. The only proper response to guilt, to guilt over sin, is confession, repentance, and faith in Christ. That is the only thing that can remove your guilt. Psychology, antidepressants, electroshock therapy, none of that will take care of your guilt. David tried to flee from his guilt. He tried to cover it up and pretend it didn't exist. Psalm 32.3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. David refused to confess. He refused to tell the Lord about his sin. He refused to repent of his sin. He knew what he did was wrong. He knew God hated it, and he didn't do anything about his guilt. And he tried to run from it. He tried to ignore it. Did he feel better afterwards? No, God disciplined him. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. Vitality here would say his life juices. All of his energy, all of his motivation was dried up. And all he could do is lay there and weep and cry. Sounds like a depressed person, doesn't it? Psalm 51.8, he describes this discipline. He says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He was miserable. How did David get rid of his guilt? How did he find relief from the pain? Psalm 32.5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There is only one biblical response when you are feeling guilty over sin. It's not, as we sometimes do, it's not to run back to more sin. It's not to go find a bottle or a pill. It's not to go have an electrical current pass through your brain. If you are feeling guilty over sin, your solution is to turn back to Christ. Trust in Christ, confess your sin, and receive forgiveness. Are you depressed? You struggle with depression? Look at your life this morning. Are you following after your feelings? Are you chasing after a good feeling rather than chasing after obedience to Christ? Stop chasing your feelings. Get a new purpose in life. I want to be pleasing to Christ. Are you focusing on yourself? Stop. Spend your time meditating on Scripture. Meditating on who God is and what He's done. Are you fleeing from your guilt? You need to stop that too. Confess your sin. Forsake it. Act rightly. Act according to Scripture, and you will start feeling better. If you need help, if you have this problem and you need some help, you have a sovereign God who brought you to this church to hear this sermon. 
And we have biblical counselors who would love to help you. It would be our pride and our joy to help you. Well, I, don't, I really don't want to go and talk to anybody. I, I, that would be too embarrassing for me to say it to somebody. I'd like to do it, but I'm just kind of embarrassed. Go to our website, gbcburning.org forward slash counseling, and you can sign up online. You don't have to speak to anyone face-to-face to sign up. We'll be happy to help you. All right, let me close in prayer. Father, your word is sufficient for all of our needs, and it's sufficient because you are sufficient that you are more powerful than any feeling. You're more powerful than our feeling of depression. You're more powerful than our lack of desire or motivation. That we can, through your Spirit, live a life that is pleasing to you. We can overcome feelings. And Father, you know the hearts of everyone here. You know where they're struggling. You know where they're hurting. We acknowledge they are indeed hurting. We know that you can provide them peace. And so we ask that you would help us each to apply these principles this morning, that we would not focus on our feelings, we would not be self-focused, we'd focus on you, and that we would run to the Lord Jesus Christ for our, for our guilt. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.